Welcome to episode 154 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by two guests we've been waiting for for a while, Kurt Dukes and Tony Sager uh, from the Center for Internet Security. Welcome, guys. Uh, both of uh, both people I worked with at one time or another at the National Security Agency, both in charge, I believe, of uh, the Information Assurance Directorate, uh, uh, and therefore really familiar with how the big guys do security. Uh, uh, and what's interested, interesting now is we're going to ask you how your moms do security after they've uh, consulted with you. So it's uh, it's great to have both of you here. Uh, uh, also joining us for the news roundup is Carrie Cordero, a lawyer who focuses on national security law, homeland security law, etc. Carrie, uh, uh, welcome. Thank you. Uh, and uh, uh, some of our regulars, Stephanie Roy from our telecom and internet and media practice, uh, uh, Markham Erickson, also from the uh, telecom internet media practice, uh, Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff, uh, the head of our class action practice, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and holding the record for coming back to Stepped Out of Practice Law more times than any other lawyer, and it doesn't look like I'm going to leave and come back again. I think that's uh, increasingly uh, unlikely. Uh, uh, some of you are heaving sighs of relief. Others are weeping quietly into your copy. Um, uh, speaking of which, we have awarded... Uh, Three of our uh, 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 immensely valuable uh, uh, coffee mugs to our three visitors, uh, uh, Carrie, Tony, and Kurt. Um, uh, so uh, uh, if you're listening to this and you want one of the mugs, all you have to do is come and be a guest or suggest a guest that comes on. Uh, big topic of the day is, uh, or the week, is the WikiLeaks uh, Vault 7 release um, a, and... Uh, I'm kind of interested. I wonder if this is going to have any legs. This is going to be immensely painful for the CIA, assuming it was the CIA's tools that were released. But uh, uh, the likely impact on the body politic is starting to look kind of, you know, not very big. Yeah. So, you know, I, as your listeners probably know, so last week WikiLeaks released over 8,000 documents that they purport to be CIA cyber hacking tools. Um, the immediate news stories that, that sort of followed in the first 24 to 48 hours uh, focused, um, not surprisingly, on how this means that the CIA is now hacking into our TVs, phones, and uh, other appliances around the house. Um, but of course, we know that CIA legal authorities uh, don't allow them to conduct and, surveillance and of Americans in the United States. The Although that, got, that, that wasn't there. helped. The press got that wrong. It wasn't helped, though, by the White House fomenting that story by saying, well, see, this shows that, you know, the the TVs and microwaves in the Trump Tower could have been used by the Obama administration. To well, I saw I saw that story. That story was the sort of story you you, you write about somebody you hate. Uh, you know, Except she, that was her quote. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, 
it, but she was she was vamping for time, as far as I could tell. She's talking yeah. the Bergen record. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, you you tend to kick yeah. your heels back when you do that. I yeah. uh, uh, but uh, you know, it was it was just they said, hey, what about uh, uh, in, uh, interception? Oh, yeah, well, you know, they they do all kinds of surveillance these days. Uh, and so yes, a gotcha press could say, oh, that that shows she was talking about in the context of uh, uh, CIA surveillance or Trump's uh, uh, tower surveillance. But I I think that was a that was a joke. Well, I think I, I think it was more yeah. disappointing that because the press always gets these stories wrong, and that was the sort of the trend of the stories to say that now our TVs can be used against us. That she fell right into that and yes. used the uh, momentum of that to talk about uh, Trump Tower. Yeah, the risk, of course, is that this is going to fall right back into the narrative of the intelligence community um, and the bad relationship with the technology industry. That for sure. And and that is not helped by. Uh, Julian Assange's, uh, I would suggest, disingenuous offer to work with the company now that he has facilitated the exposure purportedly of all of this information that reveals vulnerabilities. He offers to uh, come in and now work with the companies to uh, help them patch the vulnerabilities. I think it's only a matter of time. I thought it was, I don't like the guy, but I thought it was kind of clever because uh, he's driving a, uh, a wedge between the intelligence community uh, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, the companies. And I'm guessing it's only a matter of time before he leans over to one of the companies and says, you know, I'm glad to do this, but don't you think you ought to pay me? Well, of course. I mean, there's certainly, there's, a, there's the whisper of extortion that underlies this, and hopefully people will see that for uh, what it perhaps um, will turn out to be. But in the meantime, I, I do hope that the companies didn't learn about these vulnerabilities for the first time during the disclosure, because according to at least some reports, the uh, the agency knew that there was some kind of breach and has been looking into it for some time before it became public. And it certainly would be better if the companies um, had heard about this first from the intelligence community and not from the newspaper. That would be great. Uh, as a U.S. citizen, I have two, sort of two views. Is it one, as a U.S. citizen, to say, well, I'm glad we figured out how to make these machines work for us overseas. Secondly... Uh, for an association or an organization whose mission it is purportedly to disclose information about authoritarian or oppressive regimes, has it ever leaked anything about an authoritarian or oppressive regime, or is it totally focused on the United States? Well, Putin Putin has uh, believes that. Oh, I actually I, I was going to say Putin believes that the Panama Papers leaks were aimed at him, but that was not WikiLeaks. That wasn't WikiLeaks. No, I think I, look. They, I, 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 th- I think of them as basically a tool of Russian intelligence for, for uh, exposing comp- compromise. Uh, that just seems to be what they like to do. Yeah. One issue, though, just to follow up that that does uh, you know is worthy of further attention is this is now we're, we're seven years into uh, WikiLeaks exposures and other types of exposures, and it does raise the issue of. If the government is going to have these types of tools, are they doing a good enough job in protecting them? Yes, I think that's right. These are, uh, apparently all of the uh, the leaks are now being blamed in one way or another on contractors, uh, and uh, it suggests that there's there's an issue with uh, using contractors. Uh, uh, and it's too bad because contractors bring a lot of skills, but unfortunately, they uh, uh, they don't bring the same kind of loyalty. It appears. Well, and there is relatively easy technology to 
implement, which would make it very simple to detect that someone's massively downloading information to share with people or to put on a hard drive. So the legal problem, there is one legal problem I I wanted to flag here. Um, After the Manning leaks, the first WikiLeaks, there was a doctrine adopted that said, this is all classified still, and you can't... Uh, have it on your system. You can't download it. You can't read it uh, uh, if uh, if you have a clearance. Uh, and what this means is that companies that have clearances and do cybersecurity work are facing real problems because they can't do an analysis of these uh, files to see what patches they need to implement uh, because they're not allowed to keep their clearance and look at the classified data. Uh, This is, uh, you know, uh, I think a problem that uh, you would have thought one time it's no big deal, uh, we'll just live with it. But now that it's happened three times and the CIA stuff is going to come out in tranches over time, we probably need to figure out a way to uh, address those sorts of issues. Well, and it's a different type of information. I mean, if, if what they're reporting is that uh, this really does pertain to actual cyber tools, then that's different than the types of information that uh, Manning released about seven years ago, which was narrative documents, um, text documents. So it's a different type of information, which might, as you describe, you know, indicate a different way that uh, contractors and others might need to look at this information to do something about it. They could solve the problem just by saying, look, you've got a, a, a facility security officer. Tell If you want to look at uh, uh, leaked documents for security purposes, tell your FSO. Uh, and if your FSO doesn't want you to do it, he'll tell you not to do it. But most of this is just common sense. You need somebody to say yes. Uh, all right. Um, uh, or dial 911. Um, <laughs> Stephanie, um, we've got uh, a 911 outage investigation of AT&T. What, what's going on there? Uh, we don't know much yet. We do know last Wednesday they had a, uh, anywhere from a four to five hour outage or at least partial outage across 14 states plus the District of Whoa. Columbia. Um, we What we don't know yet is whether or not it was a uh, comprehensive outage or whether or not it was only an occasional right. dropped call or misrooted call. And we don't know whether or not AT&T timely reported its issues. Uh, there are two things incumbent upon, you know, uh, telecom providers and provisioning E9 911 services and E911 services. One is to have uh, adequate or reasonable procedures in place for um, backup to, to avoid outages or to minimize them when they do occur. And two is to report them as soon as they become aware of them to um, uh, 911 um, point people in the various anyone in, in a region that's been affected. And in the past, when uh, there is a 911 outage, the FCC investigates it. They'll issue a report. And in that report, they'll make a couple of findings. They'll assess whether or not uh, this was an avoidable incident and how avoidable was it. And two, they'll assess whether or not timely notification was made and reporting was made of the outage. Uh, they do have the authority to um, find the companies. They have issued fines of moderate size in the past for outages with, that they found both avoidable and poorly reported mm-hmm. in the 10 to $20 million range, less, a little more, a little less, a little more. Of course, that was also under uh, the prior chairman, 
of the Federal Communications Commission, who had a head of enforcement that was highly aggressive, and the current FCC chairman, Agent Pai, has said he felt that the prior uh, enforcement activity of the commission was too aggressive mm-hmm. and not cooperative enough with companies. So we're going to get to see how so we'll seriously see. they're taking I think it. it'll be an interesting case because, you know, we have th- – this is not, a, I think, a run-of-the-mill last 20-year Republican administration. It's a more populist administration. I think 911 connectivity is a little bit of a populist thing. I think people would like to be able to get through to their um, emergency services providers. Yep. Um, so it'll be interesting how that plays out. We do know um, uh, Chairman Pai and uh, Trump met last week. And so uh, we I doubt this came up. I doubt this came up. I think it was on Wednesday, so it was before they knew about Although it. Although someone has sued for the FOIA records relating to the meeting. Already. Of oh, course. Good. Good, good to know. Um, but, you know, they, that was the first opportunity that we know of, I think, that they met uh, in person, and they may have talked. Uh, so uh, we don't know, you know, what the tenor of uh, of the meeting was or kind of the direction that they felt the type of activity should go in. I also hope Chairman Pai will empower his Public Safety Bureau to be to take action. It's been woefully underutilized. Uh, public safety in the age of smartphones should be much more advanced than where it is now. A lot of it is due to local law enforcement that don't like to change their systems and don't want to learn new uh, systems. Uh, but every phone has a transistor, FM transistor receiver in that. That's a way to get around outages, uh, to broadcast uh, issues and let them know but, about things. Mm-hmm. Markham, that would require the FCC asserting more federal authority over state oh. authority, and I don't think that that's the direction that they're going well, to go in. They, when it comes to public safety, they are at their strongest jurisdictional moment. Uh, uh, so I, I hope they, they take some steps to, to improve the space. It's, it's woefully not where it should be. And they will, um, one of the findings that the FCC will make, they'll, They'll try to figure out if anybody's lives were lost because of the outage. Yep. Yeah. And they'll report that. Well, that, and that'll, that'll produce lawsuits for sure. Right. Um, speaking of which, Home Depot is finally, are they out from under the last of their lawsuits now, Jennifer? Yeah, uh, this looks like the wrap up. And, uh, so this is all stemming from the 2014 breach that spawned about 25 class actions. The consumer class actions were already settled for $13 million, and consistent with past practice, it's, uh, it's the, the banks who are making right, the most money. <laughs> right, the resolution of the, of the claims with the, by the banks that really, and the issuers that really sort of leads to the um, the highest dollar value exposure. So $25 million bucks is the price tag, $2 a card. $2 a card? $2 a card. Wow, that is dirt cheap. Uh, okay. so uh, But only $18 million to the lawyers. <laughs> and a whopping seven for for somebody else, uh, uh, probably uh, the alma mater of the so judge. Much, under four dollars a card. You know, well, right, but they, they, they actually like the looping all the relief together. You know, <laughs> it's less than a third. Oh lord. Um, okay. Well, I, I, let me ask you this other question. There are all these TCPA cases, Telephone Communi- Consumer Protection uh, uh, Act uh, cases suddenly. Is this just the result of the Supreme Court saying, yeah, you have standing if the TCPA is violated? Is that, is that what's going on? Well, I think that, that that's just sort of a tiny piece of it. I think there's kind of a lot going on in the TCPA uh, area it's, right it, now generally. TCPA, basically, it's if you send somebody a fax or call them when you weren't supposed to. Right, correct. Exactly right. Or a text. Or a text. text. Right. 
So um, there's a, a case before the D.C. Circuit, right, that with the auto dialer ruling mm-hmm. that's going to have some pretty significant consequences. Um, but, you know, go, to your point, Stuart, the Supreme Court uh, decision from last term, Campbell Ewald versus Gomez, has not brought the relief that many had hoped. Right. So in that case, the pre- Supreme Court uh, basically addressed the, process, uh, the practice of picking off the named plaintiffs in these class actions and held that an unaccepted offer of judgment, where basically the defendant says here, you know, you're, you know, here's the statutory I'll give you amount go away. per violation, right? I'll even will assume it's willful. I'll agree not to do it again. Go away. And, and then hope that you move the entire class action has not panned out as people hope. The Supreme Court uh, held that an un- unaccepted offer of judgment uh, does not moot the named plaintiff's class claim. And then there was some, you know, there's been some dancing around since then about, well, what if you pay money into the court registry? Uh, you know, instead of just offering, I've actually given you money and it's out there. But so far, things haven't worked out so well for the defendants in these cases. In general, the circuits that have looked at the question um, have held that uh, the Ninth, Third, and Sixth Circuits have said that even if you um, moot the individual plaintiff's claim, which is not always where they go with these things, they, the plaintiff still has the right to seek class certification. So if you still have a class action and you only get rid of the lead guy, what's the but point? Didn't do you know? any good, yeah. um, so this case last uh, last week from the Second Circuit addressed a situation where the case was dismissed before the money was actually paid and the Second Circuit reinstated the case. Okay. Um, it, the Second Circuit still hasn't addressed the issue about what happens when the money has actually been paid. But again, this still leaves out this question about whether the class claims can still proceed. Right. In, in the underlying district court case in this matter was, was issued before the Supreme Court decision, mm-hmm. so there was intervening law issue there. And, and, and look to Congress to narrow the law. I think the time is right for, for such a narrowing and the FTC and the FCC to narrow enforcement. I think it's appropriate in, in today's day and age when a lot of companies are getting thrown into this that, that have no business being thrown into the TCPA. And there are a couple bad examples out there of claims that are being brought that really you have to question on public policy grounds. Like, for example, recall notices, um, companies that are sending recall notices, getting sued for TCPA. Um, <laughs> there's a case against the Trump campaign, I believe, that sort of raises some interesting First Amendment grounds. And so there are just a couple cases out there that are kind of make you really scratch your head yeah. about but whether... In all fairness, though, there are an awful lot of people still robocalling. Yeah, that's true. and it's the number one complained about item at the FCC. They get more calls about this than any other right. thing. Robocalling. All right. Um, well, maybe we should hack them back. Um, <laughs> I, I, I see that uh, Republican from Georgia, Tom Graves, has introduced legislation uh, that I, I have to say, directionally is exactly what I think should be done: uh, uh, a uh, hack back defense for liability for uh, under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, I should I should uh, warn you by way of advertisement. Uh, I am doing a debate on this topic in two days. Uh, uh, so if you're interested in this, there is a debate that uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies is sponsoring. Uh, John Carlin's going to be on the other side for me. Uh, should be a really interesting debate. Uh, uh, no, it's not John. Uh, sorry, it's Jamil Jaffer, who usually agrees with me. Uh, uh, and it should, should be fun. But I know, uh, Markham, you think this is a bad idea. So I'll give you the, the floor. Well, first of all, the underlying statute is a horrible statute. It's perhaps the most. Well, so why not? Why, why not? Why not a, a um, big chunk taken out? It's of it, a one. Of, it's again one of these Title 18 bills that when you read it, um, you can read it and have no idea how it actually works in practice. Just like some other tech and Title 18 bills, it was 
developed primarily before the commercial internet. It's badly need uh, in need of narrowing, updating, clarifying. Um, although Congressman Graves seems to want to double down on this by uh, introducing the Active Cyber Defense Security Act, or what might more appropriately be called the Charles Bronson Act, named after the American actor famous for his vigilante films in the 1970s, each with the <laughs> words death wish in them. Uh, the act generally makes it a federal crime as well as a private right of action for a person to, quote, access without authorization or perform an act that, quote, exceeds authorized access. If you're wondering what that is, either of those terms, you can keep wondering because neither is defined in the statute and courts have been all over the place on so Let me stop you there because, I, 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 you know, you've given us the usual industry line on this, which is, oh, well, it was before no, our no. company went on, well, got no, its it, IPO. Industry uh, seems uh, to be much more embracing of the CFAA. Oh, no, sorry, you're right. It's the yeah. EFF line, but it's yeah. the same same basic uh, shtick. Oh, if, if it happened in 1986, it's got to be stupid. Um, uh, but in fact, it, it was future-proofed by, by using language like without authorization, which is very general. Uh, it's basically don't do things to computers you're not allowed to do, uh, and we'll prosecute you for that. Uh, and if they had tried to do anything more specific to the technology that they knew, they would have gotten it much more wrong. Um, it's true. It's completely discretionary and very broad, uh, but I don't know how you would write something that you wanted to last for 30 years in this field without using something that broad. Well, you're assuming that Congress can't act with more than 30-year increments, and I hope they would when they Congress uh, has, should. Has, has Congress has um, re- But has they, they certainly can enact things that aren't uh, outdated from a technological perspective quickly. The problem here was that this was written in a way that it now gets at just about every computer in the world, or certainly any computer that is subject to the Interstate Commerce Clause as part of this, including your microwave <laughs> ovens, right. your refrigerators, your doorbells, uh, However, take heart. It doesn't include specifically and in statute a personal portable handheld computer. Now, one would uh, calculator. Uh, one would assume that a fixed calculator would be subject to the CFA, but but a handheld portable one would not be uh, subject to uh, this the CFA. And the chaos it creates is it essentially allows someone who's been hacked uh, to hack back and. That's what this this law does. That's the, what the proposal CFAA does. CFAA does not allow that. In That's fact, what, it discourages it because everything you do to find out uh, who's attacking you outside your network is without authorization, presumptively, and therefore you can't do it. So in this case, I agree with you. It, it is creating a disincentive to do anything outside your network for fear of criminal liability. The problem is, it's one, it's drafted exceedingly poorly uh, to create both uh, additional confusion, uh, and it's a bad policy directionally. So it would, what it essentially does is authorizes the victim of a computer, uh, to, uh, to access without authorization the computer of the attacker of the victim, so network, to gather information in order to establish attribution of criminal activity to share with law enforcement or to disrupt the continued unauthorized activity against the victim's own computer. Um, the problem here is in a world of ubiquitous, globally connected computers, um, it's bonkers to incent persons as a matter of criminal law to engage in nerdist vigilantism to counterattack having, having been a victim. It's not a counterattack. It's a counterinvestigation. Come on. It's, they, well, they, they, it's a counterinvestigation by breaking to, into someone else's computer. Yeah, and the not, problem is, as you know, Stuart, right? 
as you know, in, in most cases, it's not one computer that's the, the, that is the target. There's many, many computers in the chain, and I suppose it authorizes you to go through every one of the computers, including an AWS server that is part of the chain, and search around in that uh, and find out if you can get information. Um, and it does allow you to disrupt the continued access of that, what that means. To your disrupt. system. No, no. It says you can disrupt the continued access against the victim's own network, but presumably that's by disrupting their system. Um, and so what that means is crazy. The other thing that's bonkers about the act is it allows any equipment that's used in the commission of the crime, whether you intended it to be used or not, AWS server to be seized by the federal government, which is another Title 18 idea that's uh, whose time is coming. So gone. this is so typical of the civil liberties left. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, you you hate government whenever it actually does something about crime. Uh, but the only people you hate more are individuals who are victims of crime who are trying to do something about crime. But uh, this is the first time you've said something nice about uh, uh, government in my in my uh, hearing. I uh, the the government is not solving this problem. They don't have the resources. Uh, the last thing I would think government wants is to authorize a bunch of deputies to go out and try to do their work for them and create even more chaos and more havoc. Well, this is this is like the big city uh, police chief's position on gun control, right? Leave this to the professionals. Uh, uh, we'll shoot people. Uh, you just stay home and cower in your bedroom. No, I, I don't think it's quite like that. And, and, and look, one would have to figure out if we could narrow the vigilante provision to actually make it somewhat manageable, but here it really allows someone to explore and engage on a fact-finding hunt through any number of computers in international commerce and say that they have a safe uh, harbor against uh, any uh, penalty because of this provision. All right, well, go for it is what I say. Let's. Uh, I'm looking forward to the hearings. We'll have uh, uh, dueling steptoe lawyers uh, <laughs> uh, in front of uh, Representative Graves talking about this. I want to ask you about um, uh, another case where um, Silicon Valley is sort of saying, government, who needs it? Uh, uh, which is um, the grayballing, uh, uh, I guess it's a scandal, uh, uh, quasi-scandal, in which um, Uber figured out which were the law enforcement and regulatory uh, 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 parties uh, that were trying to find Uber drivers who were violating the law, and instead of giving them service, gave them a bunch of phantom ghost uh, um, uh, drivers on their computer and never actually picked them up. So they were able to say, looking at the characteristics of this particular user, we think he's a, an inspector at, working for the taxi cab uh, administration, and we're just never going to give him a ride. Uh, um, a, I thought that was interesting because I think we're going to see more of this. I think we're going to see a lot more using the tools of big data to disadvantage disfavored users um, without telling them. Yeah, I think it's a big problem potentially, and I, I think this is a big problem for Uber and was uh, ill-considered. I also think it may be a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act because if I understand correctly, the MAP system – that Uber uses is Mapbox. And in the terms of service of Maxbox, it says you may not use the services to create a false identity or otherwise attempt to mislead others as to the identity or origin of any communication. So it's an inaccessible authority. I think it's an inaccessible authority, yeah, and I think they're open here now to criminal prosecution as well as a private right of action. <laughs> I think the, 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 the Justice Department is not doing 
excessive uh, uh, authority cases based on violation of terms of service. Otherwise, uh, you're not completely wrong about that. Uh, and this is it's a uh, it's a civil action, so uh, the uh, the taxi uh, administrators can can as long as you action. can demonstrate five thousand dollars of harm, which you. It's very easy to do. Well, sure. although Jennifer will say they'll just make a uh, an offer of five thousand dollars and end the uh, 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 the class. Uh, all right, uh, let's let's roll through uh, um, Geek Squad, uh, the uh, Geek Squad, and the FBI. We've talked about this before. I thought it was interesting that that the uh, the press now is totally uh, on side with the doctor. Uh, because, you know, and they're repeating all of this defense counsel's lines about how it was just one ambiguous I- image in an inaccessible uh, space and the Geek Squad guys shouldn't have gone there and they were really acting for the, uh, the, the FBI. Uh, uh, but, you know, nobody even mentions in half these articles that they actually used this for a search warrant and found 800 really loathsome child porn uh, um, uh, uh, images on his computer. And the guy's like a pediatric surgeon. He has pictures of kids that he knocked out to do surgery on. It's just awful. And we're being told it's a big civil liberties issue. I, I don't get it. Yeah, these are some awful facts to have to uh, launch a civil liberties case on. So this is the Geek Squad case, which involves Best Buy's Geek Squad uh, that fixes their computer. And the the, uh, defendant by the last name of Rettenmeyer was a gynecologist who, who, uh, in his practice, supposedly saw um, young girls. And it's out of Orange County, California. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a pending case in federal court. Obviously, the defendant took his computer to be fixed. And, and then, uh, the Geek Squad technicians reported what they found on the computer to the FBI. And, and so therefore he's under indictment. The, the, uh, argument in this case is that it's different than just regular, all sorts of companies have policies where if their individuals come across child porn or other evidence of crime that they're supposed to uh, report it to law enforcement. The difference that's being argued in this case is that some of these Geek Squad employees were paid informants of the FBI. And it really raises, I think, sort of the legal doctrine that's that's coming at issue here is an old doctrine um, of misplaced trust which is very similar to the third-party doctrine that we are now seeing in the digital space being challenged. Um, the, the principles of those two doctrines are very similar, third-party doctrine being that there's not, historically, there has not been an expectation of privacy in information that we turn over to third parties, like bank records, um, phone records, things like that. Misplaced trust is very similar. It's that if you uh, give somebody, a, a person, access to um, your home or your car or something, Something and they see evidence of a crime and they report it to police that the law enforcement can act on that. Um, but the arguments are being made that no digital is different and there's, you know, all different sorts of um, equities at play and um, there's academic arguments for why uh, this type of information should be handled differently and that these types of technicians should have a different duty. Um, than what historically has been common law enforcement practice. Right. And, and, and you can understand it, right? Uh, uh, it is a surprise that uh, um, 
Geek Squad is diving that deep into people's computers and you wonder about the incentives because they probably didn't get 500 bucks to fix the computer, uh, at least not personally. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, turning this guy into a civil liberties hero is just the, the, one of the more loathsome things that uh, the Orange County uh, Register, I think, has done. Um, all right. It could backfire, too. I mean, in terms of you don't want to make the, the law on bad facts. Yeah. You're less likely well, to look, get the result that I'm you want. I'm sure he's a very wealthy doctor whose reputation is at stake. He's got to beat it. He's going to spend whatever it takes. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think this press strategy is uh, uh, ill-conceived in the long run. All right, last um, uh, topic. I, I will skip over a couple of things, but uh, we can't let this um, uh, this week in cyber sex toys go by without uh, an update. Um, uh, I, I was struck by, first, the... Uh, the case about the uh, uh, the tweeting uh, uh, vibrator uh, has been settled, uh, and the guys who were collecting all that data and not telling people they had collected it have paid a remarkably small amount of money for for their violation of people's privacy. Right, three point seven five million. Maybe the CIA should expand the uh, the, uh, the the kinds of devices that it thinks about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, yes. Oh, okay. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna relate that back to earlier stories. However. <laughs> <laughs> Right, in terms of location. Or, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, or, or personnel or, uh, you know, famous uh, presidential residences. So, yeah, so case is resolved, you know. We'll have to look for the next the next treasure trove for divorce divorce lawyers. After I'll, everywhere, will have to be found in the, the next the next case. Well, it just goes to show if you were thinking there was a lot of money in privacy law, apart from the lawyers, yeah. nobody's making any money. Even the even the plaintiffs are not making money. Yet. Uh, okay, uh, let's. Let's jump to uh, our uh, our interview. Uh, 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 Tony, uh, Kurt, uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, first, I, I, I set this up at the beginning. I, uh, you've given the most sophisticated uh, defensive cybersecurity advice uh, uh, provided to anybody. Uh, but like me, like everybody who does this, you probably get questions from relatives about what they should do personally. Uh, and I'm hoping you'll talk about that. And then, but before you do, you're both with the Center, Center for Internet Security. What is it? Uh, and, uh, um, what are we going to hear from you in that capacity? Uh, thanks, Stuart. Yeah, the Center for Internet Security is a little nonprofit company. Uh, we, we used to use the tagline, making best practice common practice. Mm-hmm. And the notion there was that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my 40th year now in counting of various aspects of computer security, all of it in defense. And the observation has been the vast majority, when I say vast, I'm talking in the 90% up of the problems that plague everybody today are actually pretty well-known problems with pretty well-known solutions that okay. are available in the marketplace. You know, we don't... It's not a case of we're being attacked by magic every day. It's we're being overwhelmed by, uh, in the Defense Department, you'd call it operationally hard problems, not conceptually hard problems. It would be like people are keeling over on street corners from, from people coughing on them. You know, just right. this fairly mundane kinds of problems is really the, the vast majority of the, of the landscape. And so the idea was, yet you can look around at any problem and find people who have dealt with it successfully. Right. Right. So there are practices that are helpful deal with the 90% case, et cetera. The challenge is how do you take them from sort of the exception to the mainstream, right? It's a little like, it's a little like keeping a wooden 
boat afloat, <laughs> okay. right? I, I, because if there's a hole, the water will find it, right? Mm-hmm. It will sink your boat eventually. Right. Yeah, I, and uh, and and so every leak is it's a mistake. There's, there's some, it, it shouldn't be there. It should be right. fixed. Um, and yet. You know, boats leak all the time because uh, uh, it's hard to find leaks. I, if you're a boat owner, there's a hundred things to do, right? And every right. maintenance and repair, and there's constant. Uh, uh, the conditions are changing constantly. The weather, the you know, shrinkage, warpage of. Uh, Plus, when you so. when you when you turn on your computer, it's not like uh, stepping into the uh, the bilge and finding that you're ankle deep, right? That's right. <laughs> you you don't know uh, that you're you're sinking right. until uh, you know the mass goes under. Um, okay, um, and, and so you guys are really part popularizing cybersecurity practices. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair way to think of it. I mean, in that. So this idea of going from good practices to common. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we, as I look back on this historically, you can look at the way uh, medical practice developed and the way that we uh, train and certify uh, airline pilots and you know a variety of fields, right? They've had a long history of uh, codifying knowledge, deciding what constitutes the credentialing of people, you know, the development and sustainment of, of a, a body of knowledge that really is considered core. And then we embody those in things like building codes and licensing and, you know, mm-hmm. a variety of social mechanisms. Well, cyber is still kind of this wild west, right, where we all think it's magic. And, uh, you know, only magicians can attack me, so only magicians can save me. Right. And the scruffiest looking person around the table must be the smartest, therefore I would need more of them. And, you know, there's, uh, there's a sort of um, magic about this. And it's not because it truly is magic. It's because we haven't figured out what is really important there. Like one of the topics uh, in the news was the zero days, right? Right. What, what could be named better than zero days? Yeah. Oh, it's so dramatic. It's so, oh, my gosh. You know, nobody knows except for me. And what am I going to do about it? So there's this – I think we're still – when asked to um, talk about the state of play in the business, I, I would say we're still in the emergence from wizardry stage. You know, wizards are kind of the way we think of this problem, which is – uh, great job security for wizards. Right. It's just not very helpful in terms of the, like the, the legal issues, right, or the social expectations. So let's 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 jump in and start, uh, you know, caulking people's boats and uh, 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 ending wizardry. Uh, let me start with phones because more and more of our stuff is on phones, and cybersecurity on phones is really quite different in many ways from cybersecurity on computers, which we have more experience with. Uh, uh, so um, if you're trying to buy a phone and you want security, uh, should you just buy an iPhone? Uh, I, I, I hate Tim Cook. He's, you know, he's <laughs> scum. But, uh, uh, and he feels the same way about me, I should say. Uh, and his phones are overpriced. But are they more secure? I've heard people say they really are fundamentally more secure than Android. Yep. So, um, Stuart, uh, first of all, I have to admit I am an iPhone uh, junkie. Mm-hmm. And I'm also an Apple uh, MacBook uh, user. You've been colonized by Tim <laughs> So I've been colonized. Uh, uh, having said that, no, I don't see um, much difference between um, Google Android, the operating system, and, uh, and the iPhone um, iOS um, okay. uh, operating system. Uh, where I think di- uh, the differences is, is if you go with a cheap um, um, uh, smartphone made offshore, it may have a uh, Android uh, version that is several uh, years old. Well, you can't do that. I mean, everybody knows that uh, if you don't update your system 
all the time, then you don't get the security updates and you're, you're toast, uh, uh, unless you happen to be tweeting from the White House. but I'm telling you if, you, if you do a search on Amazon for cheap smartphones, you're going to see some knockoffs, non-Google, yeah. uh, non uh, um, you know, major uh, player, primarily from the Chinese market, that are that, that their operating system is uh, several years old. So and I was it's hard; it's difficult to up, actually up, update those. Oh yeah, no, no, it's 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 it it, it, it it seems to me pretty clear. You need to have the yeah. updates uh, as they come out, and of course, um, Apple will give them to you all over the air automatically. Uh, they'll do it for everybody except the FBI. Uh, the FBI they won't uh, update, uh, especially for uh, uh, at least when it's a terrorist case. Um, uh, but uh, uh, with Android, you've got two problems. You've got one, you've got uh, old equipment that can't handle the upgrade. And then you've got carriers who are a little slow about the the upgrades. My assumption is you really probably ought to buy a Google Nexus or, or equivalent, something that comes straight from Google or is plain Google Android and has a an upgrade uh, promise that you'll get it within days of it coming out of Google. Yeah, I, th- I think if you look at the sum total of the security, so it's more than the operating system, right? It's also the distribution of the applications. Yeah. So uh, I would characterize it as in the Apple ecosystem, it, it can be simpler to do the right thing. It's yes. It's not that you can't in, in others. It's that you're sort of locked in. Right, the well, we, we Android users like. say it's because Apple just assumes its users are not that bright. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the, the marketing side of that is Apple better protects. Yes. Right, goes out of its way. So you've got the, the fragmentation of the operating system problem, right, the, the, the outdated yeah. hardware when it gets unsupported. And also... You know, the, uh, like one of the the uh, key security uh, defensive measures that you could never sell, at least in the past, in the in the defense department, was what's known as application whitelisting. Yes, so okay. we, we will words, only run we'll certain only run applications. applications that we have vetted that we have a, make a positive statement about, right? And there were a variety of cultural and technical reasons why that can be very challenging to actually execute. But in the phone ecosystem, no one says whitelisting; they say App Store. Right, and, and we you, accept that yes. right, as a marketplace. We accept that as a natural um, part of the way software is distributed. What you really get there, security-wise, though, is you get a single distribution point. Right, right, for the and an ability vetted, to, to the, yank the, it back. And exactly, you can you, so you can do a number of things that are, have security properties. The vendor may be doing them for economic reasons, right, right. to preserve their reputation. But so you know, in so, addition to the phone, you have to look at well. So the jailbreaking, the going to to uh, flaky applications uh, stores as opposed to right. something that comes directly from the manufacturer. You know, so so in, in some total, I would say it's easier to, to kind of do the right thing. So it, uh, then that really raises this question: Suppose you've got somebody who wants to do online banking and financial transactions. Uh, would you tell them, "Don't use your computer; use your phone." Um, no, I, I actually use my computer from when I'm making. Okay. Uh, and what it does, though, is there's two-factor authentication that goes there. So there's some tying of tethering of your mobile device with your, uh, with your laptop. So you tell the bank, you say, only accept transactions from this particular computer. Right, you can tie it to a, a piece of hardware, whether it's a phone or a, or a laptop in, in that regard. So 
Two-factor authentication is basically uh, there's a three or four ways to do it. They can they can uh, send you uh, a little piece of code that runs on your computer. Uh, they can send you uh, something to your mobile phone, just to SMS you a code. They can give you a little uh, a changing number that either changes on a special fob uh, or that runs on your phone and you type in the number that, that it happens to be up on the screen for that 30 se- uh, seconds. Any preferences there uh, between the kinds of two-factor authentication? What it's, um, since the topic was about, like, you know, just like in the old days, every computer person became the neighborhood yep. IT support person. Now That's any security person is automatically the support system for the entire neighborhood. We, we, we are drafting units yes. in that role. You're, so you're giving I have this, a guidance to yeah. 10,000 people. Exactly. <laughs> so my, my, uh, I always aim for simple first. Yes. Simple that will get used is better than uh, more complex that won't get used because it's too complex. And I'm actually trying out. So one of the things we produce from CIS is a, it's called the best practices for, for an enterprise. Right. So kind of classic IT operations known as the CIS critical security controls. Right. But it's really aimed at professional people. We've been trying out much, much simpler versions of that for very small businesses as well as for individuals. Mm-hmm. And boy, there's nothing harder for uh, the Geek Squad types like us, right, than to write in plain English and, and to put things down in a way that average citizens can really make sense of, right? Very small business owners, individuals. So, so we've been trying to craft messages that are like that. And part of this is if you can't make it in plain English and sort of straightforward, it can't have 10 steps to it, right? right. People just aren't going to do it and right. they'll immediately abandon it. So you're looking at a trade-off, right? Maybe a little less elegance in exchange for more usability. I think it's a very fair trade. And do you have these on your website yet? Uh, we do not. Okay. We have a draft out of our very small business version of this, uh, which is we've been developing in cooperation. What's, what's the site if people want us to look at the draft? Uh, cisecurity.org. Okay. okay. Or they can contact us probably through right. would be best. Very cool. And then I've been trying out with local groups. And I'm talking about groups where I bring down the average age when I show up, which is really kind of <laughs> shocking. Uh, and these are, again, good citizens, normal people, small business And people folks. who have assets that they worry about. Absolutely, that, that, you know, they need a chance to protect themselves. And what we find is that, you know, the cyber language doesn't resonate with them. But when you speak of it as fraud mm-hmm. or bullying yep. right, or extortion, they get that. And so they, I think that's a, a way to think about this problem differently than most of us have who have grown up in the technology. So how important that we've seen enormous effort put into encrypting and providing encryption solutions to people from WhatsApp to Wicker to mm-hmm. Secret. Uh, um, how important is that as a practical matter? Uh, I think end-to-end encryption, uh, and that's what you're talking about mm-hmm. with um, um, applications such as uh, WhatsApp and uh, Telegraph and others, um, is, is vitally important. I mean, it actually takes the um, the carrier or the um, service provider out of the loop at that right. point in time. Uh, I just wonder it's not how good for big uh, law enforcement, but it's absolutely good for yeah. Well, I just wonder whether, as a practical matter, that's a uh, a mechanism by which a lot of crime is committed today. I'm not sure how much. You know, how much in the way of actual intercepts of SMS signals are going on uh, today? Maybe there is. Uh, it's just, uh, I, I think uh, ransomware and extraction of financial information are the big ones, and those are from the, the device at rest or uh, you know turned on in your in your study. Uh, okay. So, uh, and any any preferences? Which what, which of those do you use, uh, Kurt? 
for um, for, for yeah, I for, use my phone as my second uh, factor of authentication. And and uh, what which uh, uh, system, which end-to-end encryption system do you use? Are you a WhatsApp person, a Wicker person? Sure, not to say. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> of course, right, because all of these things have have one or another opportunity to hack them, or at least that there raises the a possibility. Yeah, I, 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 you're right. I should not ask too many specific questions, or, or you'll begin to wonder what I'm asking about. Uh, um, okay, um, last question. A perennial temptation, free Wi-Fi in the airport, free Wi-Fi in your hotel, in the coffee shop, save on all that uh, uh, downloading cost uh, over the air. Uh, is it time to stop? Uh, my belief is yes, um, or, unless you can tether it to your phone, you know, so you can actually use that. Or, or uh, Well, you can tether it to your phone and then use your phone right. to, to, to basically get over-the-air right. uh, data, uh, and they'll charge you something for that, yeah. uh, not a lot, but something. Uh, um, and so it's, it's very tempting to say, oh, well, you know, I can get this Wi-Fi, all this data for free. Um, you think that's too risky. Yeah, free is not always free. Right. Yeah, I think in the in the price of either a commercial VPN, a hotspot, right, tethering right. your phone, the data charges are not not outrageous, not so like they were certainly were a few years ago. So my, yeah, I think it's ten dollars a gig for for my service. So, so I, I think from that perspective, uh, there are cost effective and and reasonably technically accessible <laughs> opportunities. VPNs can still be a mess to set up, you know, a little complicated, especially when something crashes. But all right, but so, those, are all, so those are all wise. Let, let's go to computers. Um, some things are obvious. You ought to keep your stuff up to date. Your, all your software ought to be up to date. And Microsoft makes it hard not to keep right. at least its stuff up to date. Uh, uh, the applications are harder because you don't know exactly when you're supposed to update them. But, uh, I used to have a, uh, a piece of software that would tell me whether all my applications were up to date, mm-hmm. and it just got it, it got weirder and weirder, and I've stopped using it. So I, I don't have a good mechanism for determining uh, how to uh, uh, keep all my applications up to date. Any suggestions there? Well, I think many of them now uh, automatically inform you if there's an update available. Right. So when, the, when you open the program up, start it up, it, it will check automatically. There's still a few things around, right? I remember the time when there were sort of programs that would try to figure that out, right? They right. would go to the website of the vendor and... You know, try to figure out if you're in the correct version. I, those seem to have disappeared, I think. Is my yeah, that's kind of what I thought. They I'd say, you like know, and then not. Apple has tried, like, through their app store on the desktop, right, to, you know, there's, it's been a mixed message there, but if, um, if you, if that's how you receive the software, you purchase it through the first place, then Apple knows and makes that arrangement between you and the vendor so that you're updated. So it's not nearly, I don't think it's challenging as it used to be. But, how about antivirus? Uh, um, is it worth having, or should we just let Microsoft Defender defend us? Um, so on my uh, Apple site, I actually don't have any AV on my. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't. I haven't found the need for it. So. Okay, listeners, <laughs> remember <laughs> that one. <laughs> just to offer a counterpoint, uh, I, I still install it on my Mac. Right. Uh, but I, and um, but this is you know there's a lot of free antivirus out there absolutely. and some of it comes from weird parts of the world. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, are there antivirus uh, systems that you think we should uh, are likely to be safer or at least that you have prejudices in favor of? Uh, you know when I'm when I'm talking to the neighborhood you know yeah. my, my support <laughs> uh, community out there, uh, it's go with simple again. Uh, for example, I had an intern once take a look. I think of the maybe top 10 or so ISPs in the country, mm-hmm. 
the I think all or almost all have already pre-licensed either McAfee or Symantec. Or oh, so your ISP main, should give you something. Yeah. Now the now the challenge is that it turns out they don't advertise it very heavily, right? And they don't necessarily make it easy to find, right? So they can say they've done. I think this is a slightly cynical part of me. Say they they're offering a security service, but if every user actually took advantage of it. The licensing fees would drive would the ISP broke. Oh, so they want to be able to say, yes, you've got it. I, uh, I have the impression yeah. because okay. the uptake that I had informally from a couple of the ISPs was that it's in the single digit percent, which is kind of odd because I, I happen to personally know people that have purchased, you know, for some amount of money, the commercial equivalent of what they already get for free. Yeah. But they just didn't know it. So I would say keep it simple. Go with one of the mainline top four or five. You can look at the, the ratings and the testing of them. They're all within a, you know, a fairly small amount of each other. Sometimes some are better at detecting, and but the, the difference is really in the noise to me. So here's here's advice that I sometimes give people that I am not sure is uh, standard advice. But mm-hmm. I, in in my view, uh, hardware is dirt cheap. You, for three hundred bucks, you can get a netbook. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, for five hundred bucks, you can get a Chromebook. Uh, um, and if you're going to do a lot of online banking, it seems to me that the risk that something will infect your machine is uh, just from your ordinary uh, uh, wandering around the web is is real. Um, and if you're really worried about your banking losing control of your your financial uh, uh, software, uh, I basically recommend to people that they uh, dedicate a machine. Just to their financial stuff, they it only goes to three or four or six or whatever sites uh, you use for banking and financial transactions, uh, so it can't pick up viruses elsewhere. Uh, and you keep it up to date, uh, and it's just the way you do your uh, your banking. Uh, um, uh, so I'm now going to subject that informal advice to the experts. Uh, uh, is that is that excessively paranoid? Is that okay. dumb? Um, I think it's excessively paranoid. Oh, right. Um, but, I mean, it, it's good advice if you're, if you're actually going to be diligent and not only do that, but most users will fall into um, bad habits and actually, you know, just this one time I'm going to use my other laptop or my other uh, Chromebook or something of that nature mm-hmm. to do that. And uh, I think, you know, it typically is where it breaks down in that regard. I think, again, if you if you're... Maintaining a high level of patch and configuration. If you've got a firewall turned on, and most uh, most laptops come with uh, firewalls built into it, if you've actually uh, tightened up your um, ISP uh, provider router, I think it's uh, fairly safe. All right. What would you make your um, financial sites do, or at least ask for? Uh, right. Uh, some of them will do voice recognition for you before they'll let you do transactions. They'll they'll limit the number of Transactions you can do, or the places where you can move money and things of that sort, uh, um, and they'll do two-factor authentication. Sometimes you have to ask. Uh, uh, what kinds of things do you think financial institutions should be offering to customers? Well, I, I think the, what they should be offering is if they haven't seen this piece of hardware, whether it's a, um, a laptop or a tablet or a, or, or a smartphone. Um, they they should then send a, a separate query to either another device that they know just to validate you know is this a legitimate device or right. not uh, okay in that regard and I, actually it's pretty effective because if you happen to be out and all of a sudden you get that text message 
I guarantee you, you're going to react to it. Yes, that's yeah, right. Fraud alerts. Unless, unless you're like me and you get all these messages from all these services and you don't actually pay attention to enough of them. Uh, but yes, I, I agree with you. Uh, uh, that will certainly get your attention. Uh, uh, and in fact, some of the, uh, the the most effective scams to get people to download uh, uh, malware is to say. Uh, are you approving or disapproving this transaction? Click here, and no matter what you click, you end up downloading the malware. Yeah. That's right. uh, okay. Um, um, if you've got sensitive data on your machine, uh, if you kind of assume that's at risk, uh, what do you do? Do you encrypt it? Do you keep it offline and only plug it in from time to time when you absolutely need it? Thoughts on that? Uh, like for home, I don't use full disk encryption. Right. Um, it's just... I think the technology is stabler and so forth than it was, but when I was looking into it some years ago, I just I didn't want to take the chance. Uh, I don't think encryption, yeah, in my for, mind, is, is, is for laptops where you might take it someplace and right. lose it. That's yeah, when you need right. it. Right, there might be a loss issue there. But more on the um, – so I, I, I don't know what your, th- your feeling is on this, but I use a password manager right, to simplify the password management process. So that data is the most sensitive data on my system, and it is encrypted sort of naturally by the password manager. Right. So I don't even think about it. It's – comes down to do I want to memorize lots of things or a small number of things right. and let somebody else manage that and then get the benefits of strength testing and reminders to change. It, I, it, it's stuff. great. You're basically putting it, all your eggs in a basket and you're watching that basket, <laughs> but it's somebody else's basket and it's often a free well, service. The, the, right? the trade-off, like when I talk to uh, again, uh, individuals, uh, one of the pieces of advice I give, and again, I'm, I've become less mainstream a computer security guy over yep. the decades, again, aiming for simplicity that will get used. Uh, especially for older audiences, I, I suggest that they consolidate information wherever possible in a place that they have greater trust in. So yes, this, yes, this is completely right. opposite to the Where they're more likely to remember right. the uh, password. Exactly. So things like, uh, and we do this naturally. For example, if you use PayPal, yep. what you're really doing is you're aggregating the use of your credit card right? Yep. with someone that you hope and believe, you know, there's evidence to believe that they do a pretty good job of protecting your information. Yes. As opposed to counting on every vendor that you deal with to do the same. Right. Uh, when you shop through Amazon, you're in effect doing that also, right? You're, you're going to sort of one high-end um, clearinghouse that does purchasing through many other vendors. And that's think of that then as sort of consolidating with someone that has a better, a good track record. You know, their reputation is dependent upon their protection, et cetera. It doesn't make them perfect. It simply simplifies the problem. I think that's an interesting and, and, and plausible approach. But, Kurt, let me ask you, do you use a password manager? I do not. I actually move most of my um, personally identifiable information and store it on a secondary drive. Uh, secondary drive. That's so interesting, that, which, which you only pull out when you can't right. remember the password. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, for example, uh, my filing my tax return is tax season. And mm-hmm. so uh, whenever I get ready to do that, I have stored off offline and, and and put it online at that point, as well as any uh, any type of forms I filled out for uh, the family. It has dates of birth, social security numbers, things of that nature. And the theory is that the, it, as long as your computer's on and you're on uh, connected, uh, somebody could be going through your stuff. Right. Uh, and if you keep your most sensitive data off, except for the very modest number of times when you actually need it, you're much less likely to have it stolen. That's correct. So I, I, I have not quite gone to this, but I'm, I've noticed there have been some breaches involving or at least some security problems involving password managers recently. Uh, I, and uh, I'm beginning to think I'm going to write it down and put it in my wallet 
I, you know, I, I, I haven't lost my wallet in a long time. Uh, if somebody found it, obviously you don't write down exactly what the password is. Mm-hmm. You, you use a little something that you will remember to change the number or the, uh, the first letter or what have you. Well, I think that's a, a, like a difference between sort of classical enterprise-oriented computer security, right? And, the and people, yeah. So, you know, when a, when a red team shows up, right, to test an enterprise, they're going to hunt under the keyboards, looking for the sticky notes and that kind of stuff. Right? Oh, dramatic finding, you know, that they've written down. Oh, how, how evil that was. Well, you know, if you're a homeowner and someone is to the point where they're able to look Read inside your that, you've got other problems. Right? <laughs> so, so to – and if the alternative is that they reuse the passwords over and over again or make them very simple and algorithmic so that they, you know, they can remember them, that's actually a much worse alternative. So right. for home, I'm okay with writing things down you know, and – Put them in the drawer, put it somewhere it's not obvious. Because, again, if you look at the actual risk incurred, uh, it's hard to get excited that you know, if a human being is in your home, you knows know, how able to turn to on your computer, knows kind of your stuff, Microsoft. You've got the, lots of other problems. Yes. Okay. Just not, just All right. So last, last question mm-hmm. uh, um, is trying to develop a, uh, a little bit of uh, peripheral vision. Uh, I feel as though I understand a fair amount about computer security, something about phone security, and I have no idea how to do router security, let alone doorbell security. And yet, you know, those, those things are going to end up Wi-Fi connected, and uh, we know they have crappy security. And once you're in the Wi-Fi network, I can't believe that it isn't possible to jump sideways to people's computers, people's phones, which are also hooked up to the Wi-Fi network. What what are you recommending if people are starting to worry about whether their router or their internet-connected devices are a problem? Uh, well, this is the hot topic on the... Um you know, in interviews and, and questions I get about what am I going to do with this Internet of Things problem. Yeah. So I'd say right now I don't know what to do, right? Because these things are appearing um, outside the knowledge of the average consumer right? yeah. in light bulbs and appliances and things like that. And so you've, we're at kind of a wild, wild west stage. I don't want to be dramatic, but it's not clear. No, no, their security, make... the security sucks. They're using, they're using yeah. uh, uh, you know, permanent passwords right. and default passwords so all the time. It's not clear what... Uh, how you even make a decent decision? If you, yeah. you know, could you just avoid them? Well, you know, my kids gave me as a present a uh, a smart picture frame, yes. which I didn't want in my house, but has to talk to my network, etc. You know, yeah. uh, if anyone's had uh, Solar City or somebody come out, right? I, I'm going. I, we didn't wind up doing it for economic reasons, but I'm li- flipping through the contract, and one of the last clauses is, oh, and by the way, we need access to your home network. Oh, why is that? <laughs> and she looks at me, the poor salesman. Yeah. She goes, "You're one of those, aren't you?" <laughs> I said, I said, I'm sorry. I can't help myself. She goes, I'd have to get you to talk to our tech people. But uh, but the issue was legitimately, right, they want to monitor the health of the solar cells yeah, yeah. to look for you know decay and problems, et cetera, so they want to provide access. Well, that's reasonable from, a, from one perspective. It's unreasonable from another perspective. That was not the reason why we did not do it. But there is a lot going on, I'd say, and we're seeing a next generation of ecosystem battles mm-hmm. between folks like Google and Apple and so forth, right? That is uh, home appliance, home, I think home gateway was the term a couple of years ago. Yeah. You know, this idea of that there all ought to these be a devices, network that connects it all. Yes. Right. Should there be some uh, centralized way to filter, uh, provide authentication services back, right? In theory, I, I was once on a panel with IoT security a couple of years ago. 
I'm the third person on the panel, so you know, this is so easy. First pr- panel person, oh, doom and gloom, doom and gloom. Second person, doom and gloom. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, I better say something positive about IoT right. you know, when it comes to me. And I said, well, there's, there's three reasons why we could have hope in IoT security. Right. These are not mainline computers with sort of infinite functionality. Right? Right. In theory, we could define that a microwave only needs to speak certain commands, provide certain data, in right. theory. In theory. So we, we have a, an opportunity to deal with that. And most things like this are not written from scratch, right? They're, they're assembling off-the-shelf parts. They're taking operating systems from the marketplace, mm-hmm. you know, stripped down versions of Linux. They're taking standard libraries. They're really composing these things, right? And there could be a notion of trusted components, things that have been yes. developed, frankly, over decades that would be perfectly suitable for this. And then third, this emergence of this next generation fighting over who's going to be your home gateway, who's going to talk to your thermostat and your appliances and sort of make sense of it, provide authentication. Uh, So to my mind, it's still unclear how that will shape out. But I think there are opportunities there to deal with that problem. Not everyone's doing it for security reasons, right? Some of them are doing it to trap you within an ecosystem of services. But I think that's a, the closest I have right now. I've been s- trying to sort through all those issues. And, but it really is a problem. And what we're seeing is a repeat of the, you know, the, the fact that you can find a vulnerability, you know, in a, in a car operating system in an appliance for something that has no security built in. It's not very impressive. Yeah. But it makes great press on CNN and places like that. Kurt, uh, I'll ask you, do you have a uh, um, Wi-Fi enabled doorbell yet? Um, I do not, um, and I'll tell you, uh, from as far as smart home, I'm not very sophisticated. Uh, I do have uh, every one of my TVs is um, is a smart TV. That said, I've actually turned the uh, Wi-Fi off on every one of them because I simply don't use it. Right. Um, and uh, I that was be- that was before we discovered that uh, the CIA could turn it on. <laughs> exactly. Thank God because, they weren't targeting me as yeah. a U.S. citizen. Um, um, but maybe as an NSA uh, 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 competitor. <laughs> could be. Um, but no, I, I do. I do believe that the future is is, is coming with IoT, um, and they are all um, um, devices that are collecting telemetry, and they want to do. They want to share that telemetry with uh, with gateways, and so um, I think we have to figure this out. Uh, how you go about doing that? So I think um, the good news is there's um, plenty of job opportunity for um, security experts in, in the near future when it comes to IoT. I, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, okay, thanks to Kurt Dukes and Tony Sager for that uh, tour of the uh, horizon. And we will go to uh, cisecurity.org uh, and look for uh, uh, more guidance to small businesses, which probably would also work for reasonably sophisticated home users. So uh, that's great. Also, thanks to Carrie Cordero. It was a pleasure to have you, Carrie. Uh, uh, to Markham Erickson, to Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff, uh, and to Stephanie Roy. Uh, as always, Always, we're open to feedback. Uh, send your questions or suggestions for candidates uh, to speak or topics we should cover to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or just leave us a good review on iTunes. It'll um, uh, do us wonders and it'll aggravate Tim Cook, so it's a twofer. Uh, this has been episode 154 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget, if you suggest a, a guest interviewee and we bring them on, you will get one of these uh, invaluable uh, uh, Cyberlaw Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast mugs complete with logo. Uh, coming up, we're going to have Michael Daniel, um, uh, former special assistant to the president and cybersecurity coordinator, uh, and now we 
we have a pretty good idea who's going to replace him, so we'll have a chance to talk to him about that. Uh, uh, we hope you'll uh, tune in for that and other uh, uh, episodes as uh, we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.